Welcome to What's Your Story Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Story. On this pod, I sit down with people of color leaders to understand how they've been able to use their superpowers to make an impact on our world. And I do it one story at a time. This week, we will pass the one-year mark since the murder of George Floyd. And I wanted to use the pod this week to reflect on where we've gone since then and, and, and really what, it, what has happened as, as, a, as a country. And I couldn't think of anyone better than to have Ebony Wyatt, who is a business leader. She's a professional speaker and just an all around just boss that lives in Minneapolis and actually has spent the past year there. She actually relocated back to Minneapolis uh, just about this time last year. And so I wanted to invite her on to have her share her perspective and her stories from this past year. But ultimately, I I really, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do to, in a way, commemorate this, this time. Uh, but I felt like I needed to do something. Uh, and, and, and this is something that we talk about in our conversation. She says, you just, we just got to do something. So this is my attempt to hopefully bring us all closer and help us find the solutions that we're, we're still looking for. So let's get on to the story. As we are quickly approaching the one year mark since the the killing of George Floyd and what really sparked all of us to come to grips with the United States relationship with systemic racism, racial inequalities and ongoing social injustices. I I really wanted to spend some time having a discussion about what this past year has really included and felt like. And for me, one of the benefits I have in, in launching the podcast and into the world is I get the chance to sit down with some amazing and dynamic people uh, from all different backgrounds. But today, I'm honored to welcome back Ebony Wyatt to the show, who she graciously shared her story last season. And she actually coined the idea of being the future ancestors, which is something that I've literally sat with every day since our podcast discussion and truly has gone into how I make decisions in in my life, both big and small. So just quick by way of background, she actually moved back to Minneapolis five days after George Floyd's killing. And she and her family really had a almost front row seat to seeing how that how that played out. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to come and join and really share in this discussion. So with that, I just want to thank you, Ebony, for taking the time for coming back. Thank you so much, Matt, for inviting me back. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So before we we dive in to the discussion, I just want to check in. How how are you and, and how is your family doing? We are doing better. It has been a long year for us. We we moved in June from Arkansas to Minnesota. And, you know, as a Black American, we all know how long this year has been from the killing of George Floyd being witnessed kind of on television for everyone to see being a real time of reflection and people pausing to really, really understand and start to learn about more of what the Black community has faced. So, you know, we've relocated in a pandemic. We relocated in a, 
to a city that was the epicenter of racial injustice and protests. So, Matt, it has been a, a long year. And, and we are, we, while we were happy with the Chauvin verdict, it still, it still didn't feel like justice because somebody was still dead. But yeah, we, we are, I would say, I know that was a long answer to your question, but we are doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I just really touching on that. I, I think the one thing that, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, and it felt for me, it was, it was one example of accountability, which to your point, it, it does no, by no means does it feel like justice, but, and we'll touch on this in a little bit. It's just for me, it feels like we've kind of forgotten that heat or that, that center of focus that was with us a year ago. And we've had so many incidents since then that remind us, but it hasn't quite had that coming together that we did in, in that previous time. And so I, I think just to help people kind of Take us, take you know, take us back 365 days. In our last conversation, you shared what what it was like driving into Minneapolis and not being able to get to where you were hoping and where you were going to stay. And so, you know, I'm curious if you could just both remind us what that was like, but then also a year later, how do you feel about the decision and what what has what has what have you taken away from being back there and spending the last year in Minneapolis? Yeah. So Matt, to remind you and the listeners of, of my family's journey, we moved to Minneapolis five days after George Floyd was killed. And we drove, so my family of five, we drove two cars from Arkansas to Minnesota. And about five hours into the drive, my phone is just pinging left and right. Now, my husband's in one car. I'm in another car. We kind of split up the kids and I'm like trying to be safe, but also like what's going on. So I check my text and I'm it's coworkers, it's friends. Like, I'm not sure you guys want to go to Minneapolis. Like, I'm not sure it's safe. And I called my husband. I was like, hey, I'm getting a lot of texts from friends like, let's pull over for lunch here at the next exit we get to because we need to talk through, like, what we do. And so we pull over, we chat. I, had, at that point, been briefed by a few friends, and we decide we're going to keep going. And so our whole rationale to keep going was it was summer. We were relocating our family. We had two school-age kids at the time. And we needed to get them settled. So we didn't have the option to wait. Mm -hmm. We had to find a home and we had to keep moving in the relocation process. And so we made a choice to keep going. Now, we had about five hours left in the trip. And after talking to three or four friends, realized that where we were staying for temporary housing downtown was not a safe place to stay. It was really the epicenter of the protest, not necessarily any of the, the negative stuff you were seeing on the news, the, you know, the looting or the violence or any of that. But there were actually protests happening on the lawn of the apartment that we were going to stay in temporarily. And so on the way in, called a friend that lives out in the suburbs like, hey, can I drop my family of five in on you guys? <laughs> because we don't have a place to stay. And you have to remember, this is June this is the height of COVID. We still didn't quite understand what 
the virus was or how impactful. So we were like afraid to stay in a hotel, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so grateful that we had some friends that said, come on, we'll figure it out. You guys come here and let's assess what you need to do next. And so because of our situation, Matt, we had to have the news cycle on 24 seven. We needed to know like what was happening downtown, what was happening near where George Floyd was being killed and assessing whether or not it was safe for us to go there or if we needed to change plans and go back home because we still had a home in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. So that Monday, my husband said, well, how about you stay here with the kids and I'll drive down to the apartment and just assess whether or not, you know, it's safe and if we should go down there. So he gets there. He talks to some of the people who live in the building, the concierge at the front. And they're like, it's been safe. You know, it's been quiet. There's been some protests. So there's a lot of traffic and a lot of people, but it's been safe. And so my husband called and said, I think, you know, I think it's safe for us to go to our apartment now. And so the piece that we weren't anticipating. So we get downtown There are pictures of George Floyd on every building. Mm -hmm. There are buildings boarded up in in preparation for any looting or any of that. So companies had started to like, okay, let's just, we'd rather be safe than sorry, right? Mm -hmm. But there were, there was graffiti of George Floyd's face on all the wood that had boarded up the buildings. There were flyers of George Floyd everywhere. And the piece that I was not anticipating is having to explain what was going on to my children who at the time were five and eight. And I had a two year old and they, and on top of that, there's national guard troops on every corner around us downtown and having to explain to my children, like why these armed military personnel are carrying these big guns around And explaining who George Floyd was and why there is pictures of him everywhere and why he is dead. And I'll tell you, that was one of the hardest conversations I've had to have, explaining to my children that he was killed by the police. They didn't quite understand that. Like, why? I don't understand. Like, was he bad? Like, what happened? And so... Then having to pivot quickly to talk about the conversation around not everybody will treat you right because of the color of your skin. And so my husband and I were not were not really prepared to have that conversation with our kids, but we had to because they continue to ask questions and seek clarity. And so then I started to tell them like, hey, you know, there's some people that because your skin is brown or because we are black people will treat you badly because of that. And kind of starting to explain what racism is to my five and eight-year-old, only for my eight-year-old, his name is Cannon, to tell me that a year before in school, he had had a situation on the playground where a kid refused to play with him because he was Black. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And so, Matt, you think about, like, you think you're about to, like, tell your kid about what racism is when your kid had already experienced it in a real way in his own little life. Yeah. And and I, and I and I was, like, stopped dead in my tracks. Like, oh, shoot. Like, I wasn't ready to have this conversation. And, he, and I said, well, buddy, why didn't you tell me about it? And he said, well, mom, I didn't think it was a big deal. He said, it didn't matter anyway because my buddy, Abby, on the playground – 
Like she took, she took up for me and she played with me and she went and told the teacher and the principal. So <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. Like yeah. I had somebody to play with and, you know, I didn't think it was a thing. So I didn't tell you guys. And, you know, then drilling down, like how'd that make you feel? And, yeah. you know, that was a conversation Matt, that I was not prepared to have. And it just made it real you know, even in all my ways of trying to protect my children and trying to shield them, the world is still the world. And to know that he had experienced that and I didn't know about it. So I was a little bit of shame for like, man, maybe I should have had this conversation sooner with my kids. But also, as I reflect back on the story, Matt, the thing that I have been reflecting on more now is little Abby. Little Abby had to be raised in a household where her mom and dad taught her it was wrong to judge somebody by the color of their skin. Yeah. And not only that, gave her the tools to be a leader in this situation. Yep. And, you know, as I've been talking, you know, I've had a lot of conversation at work with my white colleagues and allies on like, you know, there's so much we can do, even starting at home with our own children. Yep. Yep. And, you know, on the flip side, little Timmy, the one that said, hey, I don't want to play with you because you're black. His parents taught him that, too. Yep. He learned yep. that from somewhere. And it was a powerful example for me to use as I'm seeking to educate and help my white colleagues to understand what they can be doing in this fight for justice is start at home, start with your own kids, start by having a real conversation with them, not avoiding the issue like I had been because kids are experiencing a lot more than we know. And they're experiencing it at school and they're, they're learning about things from their, their schoolmates versus from their parents. And um, so as I reflect back, while it was a hard conversation to have with my kids, it was hard to hear that they'd already experienced discrimination. It was a great example of, even how children can be great allies and can be powerful leaders, even at seven years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, I, there's so many things in that that I want to call out. I, I think first and foremost, the fact that all of us, our parents had a conversation with us, the, the, those of us that are, that are from our communities, and they had to decide when to have the conversation. But they, most of us remember having the conversation about this is what you do. If you're pulled over, this is what you do. If someone asks you this, this is how you respond. If someone says this. And I think many of us, while we have strived to put ourselves and our families in a better position, we still realize we're going to have to have the similar conversations, but it is that question of when's the right time? When are they able to comprehend, understand, but also we don't want to taint them and we don't want to take any of that joy that they have as children. And you hit on this point of like, even, you know, seven years old, that's like first, second grade. Like the fact that they're having those experiences at such an early age, it just speaks to, this isn't just a conversation that we should be having as those of us from the black community or the the Latinx community or, you know, the Asian American community, but those of us in, in the white community need to have those conversations as well. Because if you're not, kids are still absorbing and, and they're still picking up on the cues and picking up on the things and they're taking them into school and, and they're playing out in a way that, you know, I, I would never have imagined could have happened at that young of an age. So thank you for sharing that story. And I think, 
you know, as as we think about what does it mean to be an ally, the, I think that's a great point about it starts at home. And it starts in what you can actually influence and control. Even if you, you know, you don't think you can do all the things that everyone's doing on TV, you can't control your household. You can, you know, influence those in, under your roof. So I think there's a lot in there. And then I, I also think just the fact, and this is something I've struggled with, is the public sharing of all of the murders that have happened and the toll it takes on not only adults, but our children. And we can try to turn the TV off. But like you said, you walked outside and your your kids would see these pictures. And of course, they're going to ask, who is this? And it requires us to have to disclose this very tough news information in a way that none of us are prepared for. And so it's, it's also something I think as, as people think about how there is a privilege to not having to be exposed to that. And many of us don't have that privilege and we're forced to face it. And so there was a lot you said that I, I just wanted to to pull out. So I appreciate you for, for touching on all of that in, in, in the story you were sharing. Thank you. So as you look at the year you've been there, have you reflected on the decision? Have you reflected on the choice to push through that drive, to spend that extra five hours, to stay to eventually go to that apartment that, you know, was in, 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 you know, right where a lot of the demonstrations were happening and what have been, what has been your, let us into your thought process of kind of evaluating where you are today versus, you know, that, that drive up. Yeah. On, on the front end, you know, we made the decision to continue to go because it was, the timing was the right timing for our family and given the relocation and what we needed to accomplish in a really short amount of time. But as I got there and as we got settled in, I was like, you know what? I'm here at the right time. I'm here. I work for a company that's headquartered in Minneapolis. And there is a role that I will play in order to help my company to move forward. And I just, I reflected on that. And that was kind of, I knew I was supposed to be here at that time. And I've just, I've been steadfast in that. The second thing is I have experienced Minneapolis and Minnesota to be a pretty progressive place where people are open, where I feel safe where I feel valued. And so it's different when you have an experience with the place and you have a positive experience versus the negative experience that you may see in the media outlets. And so I'm grateful that I kept kind of pulling at that to say, this is not, this is not the Minneapolis I know. And so I want to give, I want to give it grace. And I know that my company is here I know that I'm outspoken. I know that I have a story to tell. And I know that there is a major support role that I can play, both for my company, our employees, and for the Black community. Mm -hmm. And so looking back, it seems a little bit crazy to like drop your family in the middle of what some people would see as chaos. But it was a movement it really has helped to bring about awareness and driving change. Still slow, but still moving towards positive change. And I'm grateful that I made the decision to come. I'm grateful that I made the decision to keep going. It's easy to judge something when you're, you know, a thousand miles away from it. Mm -hmm. 
you have a very different perception versus when you're there and you see 10,000 people marching and half of those people are white and it is nonviolent, it is peaceful, it is organized and it's beautiful to see like all of us come together and like stand for something and bring about change, you know, and then the flip side is probably two weeks after I gotten here, my team. So my boss invited us to go volunteer in the epicenter of where the destruction had happened. Mm -hmm. So literally when we went to volunteer, I could smell the burning buildings. Mm -hmm. They were still smoking. Honestly, some of them, I could see the devastation like firsthand, but through even through that, I could see this community. Like we went and volunteered at a church who um, had, who was distributing um, food and toiletries and needs for the community. I, I stood and watched a line of about 200 cars dropping off goods. And just imagine like you come to do something good and you're in line for two hours and everybody was so patient. Everybody had the right mindset. Everybody had on a mask. It was, it was kind of crazy to think that we were volunteering in the middle of a pandemic. And, uh, but to see the community needed this, like there, they were, you know, you think about food deserts. Now it's really a food desert when your grocery store is, is not operable because of either damage or because they've had to close down for safety. And so you really did see like there was a need in the community and to watch the citizens of Minneapolis pour out and give was another piece of like to see people's big hearts in the midst of devastation it was, I mean, when I tell you, I've been through so many different emotions, just reflecting on the first two weeks that we were here following the killing of George Floyd. It is just powerful to reflect on all of it. And just, you can see so many different elements of it. And, and of course, the elements that are played up on the news are not what I was seeing. Yeah. I was seeing courage and togetherness and empathy and giving and people seeking to learn. It was very different um, than, than what, you know, I was seeing on the news cycle. Yeah. So as we, as we move forward into the past couple of months, you know, obviously the, the trial of Derek Chauvin took center stage for, for the world. You know, many of us were glued in following along watching something which seemed very obvious, but ultimately had to go through the appropriate procedures. But I, I, I know personally, when the announcement came across the ticker, it's like, oh, a verdict is coming out at XYZ time, I had to stop. And I, I had, I think I, I think I had like two or three meetings and I just, you know, emailed, I am, hey, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to join. And there was like this building angst within me that I didn't know what was coming next, but I knew I needed to stop and pause. I'm curious for you, in that short amount of time, those couple of hours, how did you process not knowing what was about to come? And then going forward, once the actual verdict came out, what 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 was your processing after the fact? Yeah. So because we are based in Minneapolis, everybody was on high alert. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a person in the company that I work for that I don't think 
uh, I don't think there was a person that was not watching the news mm-hmm. <laughs> and like watching. And so let's say one o'clock, my phone starts pinging and folks are like, there's going to be a verdict here in the next couple of hours. And I'm like, okay. And so then of course, you know, I run upstairs, make sure my husband is watching and I turn on my TV down here in the basement. And for me, I needed to stay busy. So it's interesting, like as the black leader of the team, you know, some folks were like, I canceled all my meetings. So like you, but for me, I worked up until I heard some noise in the next room Mm. because I was just, it was like a nervous energy and I needed to occupy my mind because there, there have been so many, so many times in the last year. and, And the other one that it reminds me of is when, when we had the people break into the white house, Mm. Like yeah. how that feeling that yeah. like that, that feeling of sadness and like a loss of hope. Yeah. I was like, Oh gee. So like as much as I wanted to, to be, um, I wanted him to be guilty. There was this piece as a black American, like we've seen this tape play over and over and it's not always the outcome you want. Yeah. So I was nervous, but I heard, so I kind of heard like I had the news on in the next room and, I finally got to the point where I was like, I can't work anymore. Like I'd occupied my mind. <laughs> up to a certain point and I was like, okay. I told the guy I was meeting with, I was like, I've got to go. He was yeah. like, I understand Ebony. He was like, thank you. For, you know, we're trying to hit a deadline or something. And so I went in the next room and I listened to the verdict. And honestly, I just got even more sad. Hmm. I thought I would feel, I, I think for me, I thought it would be like a switch turned on and all of a sudden I'd feel so much better. Mm-hmm. But then it was this like, man, we had to work this hard yeah. for what everybody in the world saw is wrong for a verdict. And it just reminded me as a black American, there's so much more work to be done. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't even celebrate. I just had this like pit in my stomach. And then you know, I, I try to, I, I tend to move things, move through things pretty quickly. And so I got back to my desk and I reached out to my, I have a black champions mentor circle. So all a small group of black employees that I mentor and I ping them and we hopped on a call and, mm-hmm. you know, we're all kind of feeling the same way, like happy because we knew that if this thing went the other way, like, there was going to be some protests and it was going to likely be violent in some cities and likely, you know, devastation. Yeah. So I think we were all holding our breath, like living here locally, like, please don't let this be the case. Um, and, you know, the communities that are being devastated are our own. So there's this piece of like, please let this go our way because our communities need a break and our people need a break and we need to feel a sense of justice. And so we just kind of process together on the call until we all kind of ran out of things to talk. I think we were all just so deflated and just so mentally exhausted. It was like the the weight of the entire year had finally hit us. And while I was, you know, happy about the verdict, I still felt such a tremendous sense of there's so much more work to be done. And why do we have to work so hard for justice to be served? Yeah. I think for, you know, obviously it was a great sign of again, accountability, but the, to your point of there's work still to be done, the fact that it was sandwiched in between there in Minnesota, the, the killing of Dante Wright before days before, and then literally hours later in Ohio, the killing of the 16 year old Micaiah Bryant. 
And for me, it was, it was like, wow, we're going to have to go do this again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then that's not to account for every single other person that has happened in between last year and that, in that point. And so it did to your, to, to, you know, repeat what you said, we had to go through all of that to prove what everyone saw on film. And we don't always have a brave person there to capture it on film. And so there was a heaviness for me that kind of, it, it, it felt like it was a little bit of a, you know, yes, this didn't go left, but there's still more work to be done. So I'm curious, how did, how did you process given kind of where this bit of good news sat amongst other similar news to what we've been seeing many, many years over and over and over? Yeah, I, I think the Dante Wright killing again, being in the Minneapolis area was, was even more of a sucker punch to the gut. It was like, Oh, in our own backyard again. And then for me, Dante is what I could imagine one of my boys looking like when they are his age. So I couldn't help but to reflect on my own children, putting them in his spot and like how his parents must've felt. And then I wasn't aware of the situation in Ohio. And then I think it was the next day I'm processing with my other group of black employees, a younger group. And I'm kind of going through, how are you? We kind of check it in one by one. And one is from Columbus. Mm-hmm. And she's and she had made me aware of what it had. I didn't know. It was like the day after, I think. And I was like, I am so sorry. And so her heaviness was like, I understood that sense of heaviness when that is where you grew up or where that where you live. And she she said, Ebony, I have nieces and nephews that are her age. Mm-hmm. So I can't help but imagine them being in her place. And I've lived here all my life. So I know what the relationship is between the black community and the police in Columbus. And so it, it just, I was just like, oh, geez, I was processing heavily, again, another situation in the backyard. Then you process another situation of a young Black woman. And then also processing the trauma of what my employee was feeling. And, you know, one of the things about the Black community is we are a collective group of people. Like we, when we hurt, we all hurt. Yeah. It is it is a shared experience and it is so hard not to take these killings in as trauma every time they happen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm curious, as you mentioned, you have two young sons and a, and a young daughter. So as a mother, two young black children and also as a wife to a, to a black male, how, how do you process this this tense relationship that we seem to have right now, or not even right now, that we have had. I, like, this isn't something that's new. So I, I don't want to say that it's just propped up in the last year, but like, like how, do you, how do you carry that knowing that that's who, you know, you're thinking about, that's who you want to keep safe. And if there's any examples of like, you know, where that's been tested. Yeah. As a Black American, like we have heard, we know so many personal stories of the cop followed me for three miles, waited till I got to a dark wooded area and decided to pull me over or 
my husband has a story about his best friend who was uh, tackled by police who thought he was the criminal that they were looking no, for, although he looked nothing like the criminal. You know, so any black person I talk to, they, they pull back some some memory of their experience. But one of the things that sticks with me. So my husband was pulled over um, for speeding the day Dante Wright was killed. Now, I did not know. I think Dante Wright had not been killed at the time my husband had been pulled over. But my husband got home and he said, hey, I got pulled over for speeding. And he kind of like laughed it off. And he's like, I just got a warning. It's no biggie. But I was so mad. I was so angry. I couldn't even process like, why am I so mad? And it took me to the next day to be like, we can't even speed. You know, like speed, you can't run a red light. You can't. And even here, you know, before even the Department of Justice stuff came out in terms of like Minneapolis and their propensity to pull over black Americans is way higher than it should be, given, you know, what percent of the population we are. I felt something. I was like, I've been pulled up. Me and William, my husband, we've been pulled over more here than anywhere else we've lived. And we lived in the South. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's, you know, it's a lot of racism in the South, a lot of visible racism. And I just started reflecting on that point. And then about two months ago, I had the police called on me at the gas station and being accused of stealing gas uh, with my three children in the car and my suburban housewife. I'm just like, I can't, I can't believe this, but you know, it do, and we all know as as black folks it doesn't matter how educated you are it doesn't matter how light brown your skin is it doesn't matter what kind of credentials you have everybody is treated the same in the eyes of these types of cops right mm-hmm. and it it was just like devastating like i wonder if i were a white woman had the police you know would the police have been called yeah. You know, because the attendant turned on the wrong pump, you know, yeah. but accused me. Of course, now I'm trying to defend myself when I was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, yeah. it's just, you know, the constant anger, the constant trauma, the constant when my husband is five minutes late coming home. I hope everything is OK. Let me call. Let me make sure he's OK. Yeah. Yeah. The constant anytime you see a police, you just tense up. Because you don't know if today is the day you run into a bad cop, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, and I just I, I am dreading the day I have to have the talk with my two boys. Yeah. And again, it's something about taking away their innocence and like putting reality in their face that no matter how smart they are, no matter how accomplished they are they will still be judged by the color of their skin. And we can't take any chances of not following these rules when you get pulled over because we don't know who who is going to be in that car the day they pull you over, what type of policeman you're going to come in contact with. So there's these rules they have to follow. And then, you know, as I think about even my boys and, you know, we live in mostly white communities like, I'm going to have to make sure these kids that they hang out with understand that Cannon and Coleman have a different set of rules. Yeah. So you can't be acting a fool. 
when you're with my kids. And you need to understand and be aware of the nuance and they they may be treated differently and that they all need to be on their P's and Q's. And it might be cute for you to think it to run from the police, but my kid could be dead. Yeah. You know, so, Matt, it is just. Yeah, raising two black boys and being married to a, a black man. It's just constant worry mm-hmm. and constant concern. But, you know, as many of us have experienced, we've always been dealing with this. Like yeah. Since we were little, we knew we are even as a five year old sitting in the passenger side, that pit in your stomach when the police lights come up behind you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't I don't think I've shared this story publicly, but when we we moved recently at the end of last year into a new neighborhood and I had to have the conversation with my wife about when was the right time to go for a run? Because given we're new to the neighborhood and similar to what you're saying, most of the neighborhood doesn't necessarily look like us. So when I go out, I'm going to stick out and I'm just new. I'm a new face. And so it's almost like I had to be, you know, go on walks, be with the kids, drive around real slow, make sure people saw me and knew that I actually am here before I go out and go for what would normally be, you know, just my everyday thing, go for a couple mile run. And it's like I had to acquaint my surroundings with me before I could do something as simple as that. And so it's not just that we don't, you know, we don't want to break the rules. It's like we we have to do more just to do regular stuff yeah. that others probably wouldn't even think about and wouldn't even, you know, process in that way. And 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 so, yeah, that that a hundred percent is something that I think most of us wake up and it's in the back of your mind. It's in your head. It's it's something you have to do the math on just to ensure that we get the same thing everybody wants, which is just to be safe, happy, and and, you know, able to enjoy our families. Matt, that, I mean, I just shared this same thing with my coworkers. We are the new black family in the neighborhood. We're the only black family in the neighborhood. So guess what? Every day, a family of five, we're going to walk. Mm-hmm. I need people to be comfortable that there is a big black man in the neighborhood and to know that he's the neighbor. He belongs here. Yep. He has a home over there. Yep. Um, and being, we, I mean, I'm so intentional about that because I'm like, I need these folks to not only know you, but know your name. And if anything ever, if somebody else comes in the neighborhood and you say, hey, William, how's everything going? But you doing okay? Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, you know, we move a lot, Matt. Um, this is my eighth relocation. And so just think every time we move, we have to go make ourselves visible in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I share this story with my alumni group. We had a meeting a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I feel like this part of my duty is just to share my experiences because we are educated. We are successful, but we are also still black. Mm-hmm. And I want people to know that it's not just happening to the people who commit crimes or the people on in those neighborhoods or the people that resist. No, <laughs> this yeah. is happening to all of us in some shape, form or fashion. And I got an email back from one of the white men on that call. And he said, Ebony, I took a walk today and I usually walk around, you know, in the evening 
And he said, today was the first time I'd ever reflected on how that could be. And he said, I usually walk in a hoodie, mm-hmm. sometimes with that hood on. He said, and I never thought about how just the color of my skin being different could impact my safety. Mm-hmm. And he said, there, he said, you know, your story of, you know, being the only black family in your neighborhood prompted me to reach out to my HOA and say, hey, we should have a community event and bring everybody together so everybody gets to know everybody. And he says, so that was one small thing, Ebony, that had you not been willing to share your experience, I wouldn't have known to do. And now he said, I'm going to do my part in making sure I acknowledge the the Black families in my neighborhood, the Asian families in my neighborhood, and, and let them know they belong and that I see you. And And it was just it was a beautiful example of, you know, how our stories met while they are traumatizing to tell. Mm-hmm. While it's hard to continue to educate the masses, they are so important because people connect with people that they know. Yep. Yep. Right. And and you never know when there's somebody in your audience that needs to hear about your experience and that it may move them to do something different and show yeah. up differently. And that's been you know, that's been a journey in itself is educating the allies and choosing, you know, one of the things that I've been sharing with my mentees, they're like, Ebony, don't you get tired? I'm like, (laughs) yeah, but I make a choice every day. Some days I don't want to engage, but when I have the energy to do it, guess what? I'm going to stand up and I'm going to speak up and I'm going to share my family's experiences so that other people's eyes can be open. But no, it's a personal choice and it's a daily choice, to be honest, for me. Yeah. I don't feel like engaging. I don't want to. I don't have to. And you don't have to either. And I think it's been so helpful, especially for some of my younger black mentees to know that you make a choice daily. And just because you didn't feel like it yesterday doesn't mean that you can't speak up today. Yeah. Yeah. So that I think that's a great call out. And I, I, I truly believe that empathy comes from proximity. So the closer we are to people, the more empathetic we are towards them. But I do, you you touched on energy and you, you touch on being a naturally energetic person. I'd also add you, you also are very optimistic. And in our time getting to know each other, I've definitely have taken away that you see the positive in situations, no matter how traumatic or difficult they may be. So I'm curious as we look forward and we're all looking for solutions, where are you pulling from to keep that optimism going and to keep those energy levels up so you can show up and be that voice. I think it's, it's pulling the energy is pulling because I want my kids to have a better future Mm. and I've got to stay engaged. I've got to do my part. I've got to push my company to do their part. I've got to push my friends to do their part because I want a better life for my kids. I want it, even if it's just incrementally better, I want it to be better for them than what it was for us. And so honestly, that's where I get the energy from. And, you know, as hard as it is, I have seen and felt hearts and minds being changed by just having an experience with me and my family. And so the more I see that it matters to somebody the more I'm willing to find that little bit of energy to continue to engage and to continue to share and to continue to push forward because I want this thing to be better for my, for my children. That's great. 
So I'm going to let you go. But before I do, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to share? The thing, you know, that continues to come up and, and Matt, this, this year has really shined the light on what allyship looks like and why it's important. And there's still so many people just not sure what to do and not sure where to start. And my encouragement to them is start somewhere. You know, whether it's you need to read a book, whether it's, hey, you invite a coworker that doesn't look like you out to lunch and just get to know them, whether it's looking in your own circle to say, does everybody look like me? And am I experiencing enough difference to really be an empathetic ally? And so I just want to keep pushing for those folks who aren't quite sure what does action look like? Just do something. Do something, whether you're educating yourself, whether you're getting exposure to new things, whether you're asking questions, whatever it may be. I think everybody is looking for this perfect, like, here's your five-step guide to being an ally. It's like, no, everybody's journey looks different. And I think, I hope we've shared some really simple examples of even starting at home, even, you know, bringing together your community and making sure that everybody has a chance to meet everybody so that your where your communities where there's not a lot of people of color like they feel like they belong and i've just i've been so moved by the people who have really jumped in and and moved into action on this journey and again that's something else that gives me energy to see that people People want change and it's not just black people that want change. So if you're an ally out there and you're listening and you're not sure what to do, just do something. Allyship is active. Yeah. And uh, for my, for my black brothers and sisters who are listening, I know it's hard. I know it continues to bring up a lot of trauma for us. But keep keep finding the energy to fight. Keep finding the energy to share. Keep finding the energy to be great in whatever space you show up in. Because even our mere presence is helping to break down the biases that some people carry. Mm -hmm. So I know it is hard being a Black American at this time. But I know the shoulders that we stand on. And I know they went through a lot more than we did. And so we've got to keep fighting and we've got to keep pushing for change. And even the change and the protest and, you know, everything we've seen over the last year, it's a movement and it is making a difference. Yeah. I, I think that's the, the best way to, to close us out. We are, we are still in the movement and it is making a difference. But I do want to give you the chance, if people want to follow along on your journey, your story, where should I send them? Where can they keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, so on social media, you can follow me at Ebony Speaks to You. That's Ebony, E-B-O-N-Y, Speaks, the number two and the letter U. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and then check out my website. There's a contact page there, Ebony Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T dot com. 
Awesome. Well, i include those links. And again, I, I appreciate you sharing. It's been super helpful to get your firsthand experience. And I hope I know everyone will take a little bit away from how they can actually do their part to be a part of that allyship. Awesome. And Matt, thanks for continuing to do the good work through your podcast and continuing to elevate Black voices and our stories. And just know how much I appreciate you for using your platform to do good work and to create more visibility for African-Americans who are doing their thing and, and showcasing our superpowers. So no, I continue to appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What's Your Story podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting platform, or you can follow me on any social media platform at Maddie Story, and I'll keep you updated on new episodes. Also, if you're interested in learning more about some of the things I'm up to, head over to mattestory.com and sign up for my newsletter. And lastly, do me a favor, share this with one other person in your network that you think might enjoy it. And don't forget to keep sharing your story.